about is God's work. See, if God works first, we would say that he works, he, he does his work, and then we respond. And so his work is irresistible. Or is his work something that we can reject? I believe that this episode, and I, you may not expect me to go here this morning, but it's where I go. It's, it's, a, it's a passage about resurrection, and it certainly refers to and, and gives us this insight into the ultimate resurrection. As Jesus raises one man from the dead back to this life, we do have a picture, we do have a sense of the resurrection which is to come, that day when he will raise all men from their graves. But I believe that this episode actually helps us to answer the questions that I've been raising about the nature of God's work in salvation by way of illustration. Right, Jesus comes to stand at the front of Lazarus' tomb. So he stands at the, at the entrance to this tomb, he literally stands face to face with death. In this case, it's physical death. But I believe it's the same scenario when he stands facing spiritual death. Death is death, and one is used as a picture to illustrate the other. I believe his whole work here in raising Lazarus from the dead is to give us a picture, a parallel, be born of the, you know, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. There's a parallel. And he uses the life of one, the birth of one, the life giving in one to, to illustrate the life in the other. And so Jesus stands in front of this tomb facing death. He's troubled and he's indignant. The grave is a cave, a cave with a large rock rolled in front of it so that you can't get in or out. Jesus comes and he instructs the onlookers to move it. Open the cave which causes a certain amount of confusion <laughs> to the family in the crowd. Can you imagine? Such confusion so that it's beyond unusual. I mean, it's insensitive. right? Martha is put in the position of answering Jesus and saying, but Lord... You know, a little bit awkward here. In fact, she's described uh, Martha, the sister of the dead man, says to Jesus... Right? The woman grieving here, the woman who is suffering this loss, the, the family member has to answer Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, I'd really rather not open the grave. The awkwardness is palpable. She expresses reluctance. I don't really want to see this. <laughs> or as she puts it, I really don't want to smell this. He's been dead for four days. There's no embalming. This is a hot climate. You're going to open this up. Jesus, Martha says, Jesus, I really don't want to go here. It's insensitive in very many ways. But Jesus insists and he says, you will see the glory of God. The glory of God will be revealed. Didn't I tell you this? Open it up. And so the stone is removed. And Jesus prays. He lifts his eyes and he thanks God that God always hears him. That God always works. And he says that he prays these prayers not because... He needs them or in some way he is reaching out. But he says, I pray these things so that the people around me can hear. This is, this is about God. right? This is about the Father. This is about his power. This is about what God is doing. That God hears me. He says, when you see this, he says, so that you, so in his prayer, at the very end of his prayer there, he says, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, the prayer is all about these people understanding that I'm sent by God, that his power, his raising of the dead, what God is about to do is God's testimony and witness to who Jesus is. And so he prays on account of the crowd so that they will believe that the Father has sent him. 
And then it says he cries with a loud voice, which is redundant and so it's emphatic because the word to cry right there is where we would say he shouted or he yelled. Can you shout with anything but a loud voice? You know, so he shouts with a loud voice. I'm ringing a little bit here. He shouts with a loud voice and he says, come out. And the man who died, it says, came out. It's that simple. Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. And let me ask you a question. Could it have gone any other way? When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. When he shouted it with a loud voice of command. Wasn't a question. Wasn't an invitation. He didn't ask Lazarus to consider. He said, Lazarus, come out. Very much like repent and believe. Those are commands. They're literally commands. Could it have gone any other way? Could Lazarus refuse Jesus? You know, one, by choosing not to come back to life. Could Lazarus have laid in there and decided, no, I don't want to live again. Could, ja- could Lazarus' body refused the life-giving power of God's Spirit in that moment? Could he have said no? Could his heart refuse to pump? And his body refuse to live? Or, having received life by the command and the power of God, could he refuse to come out? Could he refuse to come at Jesus' command? Could he... Would he could, could he re- refuse to step forward? Imagine him, he's returned from the dead, he's full of, of life, his blood is pumping again, and his, his eyes flip open, and he's laying there, and he hears Jesus calling him forth from the tomb. Could he have said, no? Can you imagine Lazarus actually lying there on the slab, considering his response? No debate, no hesitation. John chapter 6, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We believe, I believe, many believe that this is a picture of how Jesus saves people. That it's meant to be, as I said, it is a picture of physical resurrection. It is a physical resurrection. And that one day, all who are in the grave will hear his voice and rise out. In fact, many commentators actually point out in this passage... Jesus needed to specify Lazarus, come out. Or if he had just said, come out. The world would have been full with the rising dead. But on this day, the day it says, the day will come, they will hear the voice of the Son of Man and all who are in their graves will rise. But this is not that day. So he says, Lazarus, come out. And we, we do see definitely that the future resurrection here pictured in this This resurrection to this life, but I believe that is also a picture of the new birth. Which is the New Testament. The New Testament, as you walk through it, is all about this work of the Spirit of God to give new life. To be born again, to be born of the Spirit of God, to be born of the seed of God, to be spiritually raised from the dead. Let me give you two pictures. One is, you know, historically, I said theologians argue about it, the two camps, and some, many of you know, and some of you won't. I'll mention the names, and 
you can remember or dismiss them. And one of them is a camp, is the Arminian camp. It's named after a guy named Arminius, not the country Armenia. Uh, Arminius was a person, and Arminianism is a guy who held the so-called free will view. And I would say it's so-called because I believe that people come freely to Christ. So let me explain a little bit about how we get there. We have this view that says that uh, Jesus comes to an unsaved person and he knocks gently at the door impatiently. And we're told Jesus is a gentleman, and so he waits. He waits patiently. They get this view from the idea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It's there in your bulletin under the second point. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Behold, this is Jesus talking, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. He's a gentleman asking if he can come in. Asking if he can come to dinner. And so in this picture, salvation depends on the goodwill of good men to open the door and let Jesus come in. And so this is the way it's cast that God works in the lives of of, of people as he sows the seed of the gospel in the world. That the goodwill of good men will wisely choose to get up and answer the door and let Jesus in. And so there's this picture of Jesus knocking gently and waiting and hoping that someone Open the door and answer. But what's wrong with this picture? The first, the main thing that's wrong with this picture is that the text of Revelation 3.20 is taken out of context. Now, some of you did the dig-ins with me over the last year. I did two dig-ins, a Bible, intensive Bible study on Friday night, Saturday morning. And some of we, we spent some time learning some of the rules of biblical interpretation. You know, and, and how do we read the Bible and, and get the meaning that's there and not the meaning we want to be there. And one of the rules is context. In other words, you can't just pull the verse out and say it sounds like it means this and put it in this context. You know, this is what it means. You've got to look at the context it in. In Revelation 3.20, what is the context? Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as many folks would know, if you know your Revelation all, are letters to the seven churches. And so Revelation 3.20 is, is an excerpt from a letter to a church. Right? It's a letter to God's people. It's a letter to people who have already confessed faith in Christ. It's a letter to people who have already become part of a recognizable body that he could write to the church in a town and, and address the church with this statement. In other words, it's a letter to you. If you've put your faith in Christ, this, Jesus is saying this to you. Behold, child of God, behold, believer, behold those who have put their faith in me and call me. I stand at the door and knock. Right? It's not a picture of Jesus coming to the unsaved. It's not a picture of evangelism. It's a picture of Jesus coming to his people and calling us to a deeper intimacy with himself, calling us to a deeper and richer relationship to himself, calling us to come together with him in communion and fellowship. For a picture of salvation, we have to look elsewhere. And where would we look? And I think one of the places we would look is right here in, in, in John chapter 11. Why? Well, it, it, does, does the New Testament conceive of this work of salvation in the same terms that we see in this picture of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? And the answer is, I believe it absolutely does. Look in 
Ephesians 2, there in your bulletin under number 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is a, you need to go read it in context and get the full. I'm going to pull it out a little bit here, but you can go read the whole thing. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. In verses 2 and 3, he paints a picture of that spiritual death. And then in verse 4, he says it is, it is God's love and mercy that comes to us when we're in this condition. And then in verse 5, he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. Now, what does that sound like? You were dead, and he, and, and he says you're not just dead. In fact, as I said, in verses two, uh, 2 and 3, he describes what it looks like. He says you followed the, uh, the people of this, the, the powers of this world, you followed the prince of the power of the air, uh, of Satan. He said you lived and you followed the passions and the lusts of your own heart, your own desire. You were children of disobedience. You were children of wrath. In verses 2 and 3, he, paints, he says you were, and he says when you were dead and your trespasses and sin, when you were there, when you were four days dead, stinky dead, God made you alive in Christ Jesus. He made us alive when we were dead. That's spiritual resurrection. That's the work of God. Or Ezekiel eleven nineteen. It's there in your bulletin. Where Ezekiel conceiving the new covenant by prophecy, and as he looks forward to the new covenant and describes what it will look like, and Jesus says, "This is the new covenant in my blood." As he works it out in his life, in his death, and in the outpouring of his spirit on his church to create a new thing. As he describes this, he says, "A new spirit I'm going to put in you." And I'm going to remove your heart of stone, their heart of stone. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. Now, he could have conceived of anything in nature, couldn't he? But he says, here's the problem. He says, you've got a heart of stone. What's, what's unique in nature about a, a stone versus anything else you see out the window? It's a part of nature that doesn't have any life in it. It's lifeless. I mean, it, 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 it's dead, unable to respond. You know, there's an old saying that says you can't get blood out of a stone. The whole illustration is to say the stone has no lifeblood. The stone doesn't do anything. I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart that beats with life, a heart of flesh. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. Isn't it the same thing? I'm going to put a new spirit within you and give a heart that beats. I'm going to make you alive. Right? It's a picture of God's gracious work. And he gives us this new spirit and this new heart, not after we've been saved, but in order that we might be saved. In salvation, it is not God knocking at the door. It's God rolling away the stone. He doesn't stand at the door like a beggar waiting and hoping someone will answer. He comes and he stands at the mouth of the tomb as the one who is the resurrection and the giver of life to the dead. He's not asking if we would be so kind as to let him in. He is commanding us to come forth. He calls us to life. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. He said, come forth, Robert. Could it have gone any other way? When the command is given. Lazarus is not lying there. We need to see again. Lazarus is not lying there. Thinking about Jesus' claim to be the resurrection. 
deciding whether he believes it. He knows he's the resurrection because he's raised from the dead and his heart pumps again. He's not lying there thinking about getting up. You know, you can imagine him sitting in his easy chair with the remote in his hand and he hears knocking at the door and he's in his easy chair debating whether he's going to get up and let the guy in or not. Jesus gives Lazarus two things in this passage. He gives him a command to come forth. And he gives him the power to come forth. And the power is the decisive thing. Right? Because I can give the command. I can mouth those words. I can cry them in a loud voice. And nobody's coming forth. Unless it is accompanied with a certain power that is alone in the hands of God. The resurrection and the life. He gives two things. Lazarus does not come until he is called. He does call us forth by his word. It is the gospel must be preached. If Jesus didn't call Lazarus, Lazarus wasn't coming forth. The calling is integral to the part. The Bible says it's here under that second point. 1 Corinthians 1.21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, those words to call men and women to come forth. Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe the foolish call to come forth into faith. And in a sense, it's foolish because the words themselves, as you and I know, won't raise anybody from the dead. But it pleased God. pleased God that through the foolishness of what was preached, to save. The power is not in the preaching. The power is not even in the one believing. But it's in the God who uses preaching to save. As he unites the call to come forth with the power to come forth, as he does here with Lazarus. Because the calling is useless. It's true of all preaching. I stand here every week. It's what I do. It's, you know, it's one of the things. It's what I do. It's who I am. You know, there's... But every week I also know that the decisive thing in what I do has nothing to do with me. What happens in your mind? What happens in your heart? I can't get there. I can't make it happen. I've tried. I've stood with people. I want to, you know, in counseling or in a thousand different ways, people who don't know Christ or in counseling, you're trying to reach, and you want to reach in and do something in their heart. Like you want to, you want to change something, but there's, this is the thing. You can talk to your blue in the face and nothing changes unless God does something. And so part of the prayer is I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that God is at work in the world raising people from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit must accompany the call. The Spirit must give life to the body. Lazarus isn't going anywhere. He's not answering Jesus' call until his heart starts to beat again. Until blood flows through his veins and his eyes open and he thinks again. Lazarus will respond to Jesus only after he is made alive. John 6, 65, we've been preaching through John. It's, you know... He said, all that the Father, John 5, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. In John chapter 6, as we leading up to 11, he said, the Lord, uh, no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. 
No one can come to me. Think of Lazarus in the tomb. Nobody can come to me. He prays and he says, Father, I'm saying this because I know you hear my prayer. I know you're going to raise him from the dead. No one will come to me. No one like Lazarus who's dead, whether in his trespasses and sins or in the physical nature of his body lying in the tomb, no one will come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father, unless the Father works. Acts 16.14, we read about Lydia who is listening to Paul preach along with others. And as Paul preached, they were told the Lord opened her heart. The heart of stone. He opened her heart to hear. Right? To listen. To pay attention to what was said. That means to hear it. To have ears to hear. And eyes to see. The Lord opened her heart so that she came to faith. If you have ears to hear the gospel, if you have eyes to see the truth and to understand it as the truth and to love it, if you can taste the goodness and the desirableness of God in His kingdom, it's because your heart is beating with life. Right? It's because life has flowed into your soul because you've been awakened by the power of His Spirit because once alive, you see and you hear and you understand all these things. Faith followed the opening. Just as with Lazarus, faith or the response to get up and follow Jesus, follow Jesus' work and literally giving life to Him. Lazarus comes out though, we need to, to say here at the end, Lazarus comes out of his own free will. Lazarus is not brought into Jesus' kingdom, so to speak, not into the following of Jesus, kicking and screaming. He's not dragged in. He's not coerced in any way. Lazarus, once, once life flowed into his body and his eyes opened up and he heard the call of Jesus, he came willingly and desiring to come. Right? His coming to Jesus was, was certain. I asked at the beginning, could this have gone any other way? I saw at least a lot of heads saying no. <laughs> when Jesus says, come forth, um, you know, he's pretty much coming out. We know how this is going to go down in the end. It's certain that, that he will come. He would not resist the call to come. He wants to come. See, that's the thing. I'll take your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart that, of flesh that sees the truth, knows the truth, loves the truth, beats with the life of the Spirit of God. And so, yes, when you hear the call, you, you will come, not because you're forced, See, our problem is what we need is not to be convinced. What we need is not to be argued into the kingdom. What we need is not to be, be converted to some new set of moral standards. What we need is a new heart. It's a heart problem. I'll take your heart of stone. Once raised and full of life, and once his eyes can see the light, and his ears can hear the truth, he freely and willingly, like a starving person devouring a steak. That's the way I would see Lazarus rising from the dead and hearing Jesus call him. Like a starving man would devour a steak. Does he have to eat the steak? No. Is he going to eat the steak? Yes, you could almost say it is irresistible. You could say it is irresistible. Lazarus having been given eyes to see the truth and the light. And, the, and Christ will come forth into life. Jesus says, all who the Father gives me will come to me. He says, my sheep know my voice. And they follow me. Because when his sheep hear his voice in the gospel, they freely respond in faith. 
And the question at the end of the day, the question at the very bottom of this is, is, is where I've been started. Whose power made the difference? Whose work was decisive? The guy in the easy chair with his remote deciding to get up and, and let him in? Is that the way the scripture presents? Who gets the glory? Because isn't that at the end of the day? If I get up, I come to my senses, and I, I see that this is a good... You know, if, if, if it's all then, and it's my great decision then that opens the door and, and everything is changed and life comes and salvation, that, that, that it was my decision that saved me. Who gets the glory? Let me finish then with Ephesians chapter 2. I said Ephesians 1 to 10 is this, you know, 1, Ephesians 2 verse 1 says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and 2 and 3 describes that stinky death of children of disobedience and following the prince of the power of the air. In verse 4, this is God uh, loves us, and by His mercy, when we were dead in this way, he's, He made us alive. And then many of you know verses 8 to 10, which is the context giving you the context as it flows into verses 8 to 10. It says, by grace you have been saved, my friends, by grace, through faith, yes. But this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ. For a new life. Right? And you see how he stacks it up. It's by grace through faith. Yes. But even the faith is not of yourself. It's a gift. Don't understand it any other way. And then he says. So it's not a result of works. That is not a result of something you produce. Why? What is he driving at? What is Paul's point in all this? He says. So that no one may boast. That no one may get a piece of the glory that belongs to the saving God. So that no one may encroach upon the glory that is God's alone. Like, let me ask you, you see the difference? The person sitting in the easy chair hearing a knock at his door and deciding whether to let someone in. Or the dead man who comes forth, called from the grave by the power of the God and who suddenly finds himself alive to the things of God. Who would have more grounds for boasting? Who would have more grounds? For worship. When we were dead in our sin, He rolled away the stone. He strode with power. And He called us to life. I was 18 when I first heard the Gospel. And I believed. And I bowed the knee to King Jesus. And I put my faith in Him. But I know, even looking at my own life, I know that He sought me when I was not looking for Him. And I know that He awakened me out of my deep slumber and made me alive to the things that matter. He opened my heart and He saved me. What should be our response to these things? Boasting is excluded. Pride is destroyed. There is a magnitude of gratitude. There is a fullness of worship. There is a falling before the One who raises the dead. And who's come to you in power and given you life. Can you taste and see that God is good? Pray with me.
Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not leave us as you find us. Dead in our trespasses and sins with hearts that are stony and cold. We thank you that you give us a new heart and that in your power and in your grace, you call us forth unto life, to the following of Jesus, to the answering of his call. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown from before the foundations of time that you have loved us and saved us. Father, we pray that it would break our pride, drive us to our knees and teach us the full abandon of worship. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close and conclude, I'm going to ask you to stand and sing Salvation's song. Loved before the dawn of time, hidden in my Savior, raised to new life. Doctrine is like the buttons on a shirt. If you get the top one right, the rest fall in line. If you get the top one wrong, everything is out of order and misaligned. And there are things that follow. Jesus says, all whom the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says, and those who come to me I will never, will never cast away. And we go from there. The attendant doctrines of his grace and his comfort. There is a reception following for the palms. I would invite you to not miss your chance on the way out. I believe they move the first weekend of June. So hear then the Lord's benediction. May the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. And may the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you His peace. Go in the peace and the power that is ours in Christ. Amen.